so happy today that we have Will Tucker as a guest on Kindness Magazine. Uh, I haven't seen you in a while and I've missed you, so it's so awesome to see your beautiful face. We lived in close proximity to each other not too long ago and we were at each other's houses for birthday parties and doing lots of hangouts and going to dinner together and it's really awesome to see you Will and I want, I want to hear all about how things are going with your gym and your personal training and then of course we're going to get to talking about some current affairs too so tell, tell us how you're doing over there in Arizona with all the craziness going on right now. Hey, Brenda. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on today. Um, miss you guys as well. You know, we did live in close proximity there a few years and uh, and um, still have my plant-based fitness studio here. It's uh, not like a big gym like most people envision. It's more of a boutique style fitness studio where I do small group training and incorporate plant-based nutrition for people to optimize their health and reach their fitness or wellness goals. So that's going well. Um, you know, it was a little challenging with the whole lockdown and COVID. You know, I was deemed a non-essential business. So I did have to shut my doors there for um, a couple of months there, but that has since lifted. So during that time, that was kind of challenging. And um, I just had to adapt with what the universe was throwing at me in a sense. So I started doing everything virtual. I found a platform through a fitness company. So I subscribed to that so that my clients wouldn't have to miss any workouts. So I started doing virtual workouts. It's kind of like a two-way platform, similar to how we are now, but it's more uh, crafted towards fitness. So it has, you know, a timer for a countdown. What's it called? It's called GymGo, oh. GymGo.com. That's the company or the brand. And uh, I've been using that and you know, during the lockdown, that was great. How did and they the, find you? Did they just go to Jim Go and then enter Will Tucker? Actually, there's a link on um, my Instagram, I believe, at Will Tucker Fitness, where if somebody was interested in the virtual training, if they're not outside of the Phoenix area, I kept it going, even though the uh, mandate has been lifted. I still do have a virtual session because I'm kind of doing hybrid now. I'm doing some virtual. And of course, now I have the doors open again. I'm back to in-person training. So yes, uh, the link is on my Instagram page, or you can just look up Will Tucker Fitness. It'll pop up in Google search. I will do that. I will do that because that, the gyms have not opened in California yet, and they're saying may not open until August or who knows when. So um, I'm doing a lot of home workouts, mostly uh, yoga. But I'll do a few burpees with you, Will. Just <laughs> I hate burpees, but I'll do them with you. Oh, we do plenty of burpees. <laughs> plenty of them. Yeah, we're, we were fortunate, like I said, enough to have our lockdown on the gyms and pretty much everything in Arizona is back open. So um, I, was, I found it somewhat challenging doing my own home workouts, but I'm so happy, you know, it was maybe three weeks ago or so that the gyms are back open in the area. And uh, you can tell they're taking precautions. They have, you know, a team of people just constantly on the floor wiping down equipment, changes, but I'm glad they're open. I mean, I can lift heavy weights again, so that's good. Yeah, it's a new world we're living in and everything is being yeah. done differently. But I think that, I guess this time where we were on lockdown, I know it sounds like we were in prison, yeah. <laughs> we had some time to reflect about some things. And, yeah. you know, like during that period is when my mother passed away. And so I was especially like wanting to just be alone and reflect and yeah. meditate a lot and have memories as well as asking the universe constantly, what's next? What's next? And mm -hmm. This is a time where we're rethinking how things are being done. And like you were just mentioning in the gyms, the rethinking, how can we do things in a smarter, better way that's healthier? Maybe that's what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement as well, is this is a time of us getting healthier as a society. So it's not just overcoming one disease, which is COVID-19, we have this, actually worse much worse disease 
it's called racism and is causing a lot more people to lose their lives and their livelihoods and to you know just never have a chance to to live a life of uh, liberty and prosperity and happiness and so this coming out of of this time in so many ways it feels right like well it should have happened a long time ago but if we take a little time to take a little pause away from our busy lives and we think about what's really important things tend to surface and we just happen to have a gentleman be murdered george floyd during this time period that shone a light on what's going on and he's certainly not the only one we've had so many especially young black men and, and, and women brianna taylor recently lose their lives to police brutality. And I feel like there's two things going on here. One, of course, is, is horrible racism. And two is police brutality, which does seem to land a little harder in the black and maybe even all uh, people of color communities. But it's happening kind of across the board. The police are killing a thousand, just they're shooting a thousand people every year. You know, and you know, yeah. half of them are black, and uh, you know, uh, most of the white people they shoot were armed, and a lot of the of uh, the black people. I think I read a statistic that said the majority of the black people. I'm not sure if that's right, but were but many of them were unarmed, and so that's yeah. what really raises everyone's attention is shooting an unarmed person. Why are you so scared? Uh, you know, that, I think that's what maybe what I want to talk about with you because you're just the sweetest, kindest person that one of the nicest people I've ever known that I can't imagine anybody ever being scared of you but have you had that experience where people have acted like they were maybe people who didn't know you saw you walking down the street were scared or that you thought the police acted with too much fear towards you just because of your skin color oh absolutely it's nothing new I'll be 50 in August so I got a lengthy resume of existing as a black person in America. I mean, I'll hold no punches and tell you, it, it happens nearly daily. Wow. Um, if, if you think about it in terms of music, it's like some days you're hearing soft music and that's the subtle uh, reactions that you see on people. And then sometimes it's blaring where you see, uh, you get the police brutality or just blatant discrimination. And it's based on nothing other than just me existing and showing up as who I am. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very real. It's mm -hmm. very real. And, you know, a lot of times Black people don't even talk about it anymore. We just got to kind of go about our business and try to go on with your daily life. But it's constantly, constantly there. And, you know, a lot of times it's, if I do bring it up, you know, I'm either, um, Oh, you're just being paranoid. You're, you're um, insecure. <laughs> oh, I've heard all these things. Insecure, you're playing a race card, you're trying to bait. I've heard all these things. So, you know, That's a lot so of times, like, yeah, they don't even feel comfortable talking about it because uh, it's falling on deaf ears. You know, a lot of people are tone deaf to it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, how we kind of led into this conversation, you know, we, we were talking about the COVID thing. I think that did kind of, the good thing, it put a pause on a lot of, um, activity goes on every day that was detrimental to the planet. I mean, if you saw some of the statistics or um, even the visual pictures of like LA, the LA area, how the smog was pre-COVID versus during lockdown, as we call it, how much clearer it is. It, the, the, the planet did need a break. Yeah. And I think it got a big inhale, exhale, and then the universe somehow shifted and said, you know what, maybe it's time to really, really put some focus on racism just from everyday people. Like you mentioned reactions that I get, whether it's somebody clutching their purse or mm -hmm. looks that I get. Mm -hmm. And B, really going into the systems. Mm -hmm. And that's the huge problem because that's what I think perpetrates the whole fear of the black man myth because the media highlights and gaslights and magnifies any little thing that happens in inner city communities. And it, it's just like with the COVID numbers, you know how they were just constantly on the screen. If you turn on the news mm -hmm. for that, you know, two and a half, three month stretch, 
and every day you're just being, hearing the same tune about black on black crime. First of all, that's a loaded phrase right there. Mm-hmm. You're predisposed to be, if criminal activity is going to take place, whoever you're around. So in white areas, you notice they don't have a white on white crime mm-hmm. or Asian on Asian crime. So that's a loaded phrase mm-hmm. right there, highlighting to make it seem like black people are savages and can't even live around each other. Right. So I'm often met with that actually when I bring up police brutality. What about black on black crime? It's like, <laughs> you know, I, I will say one thing, is there crime in inner city areas that are black? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's more so drawn on certain systems. Mm-hmm. There were some studies shown that how much a decrease would happen if there was better schools in inner city communities, um, more resources, services, healthcare, jobs, everything. If you, again, I'm gonna refer to COVID, you look at the vast difference of how many blacks were affected or black deaths versus any other ethnicity and you saw that they were higher. And that's because we don't have certain resources in the community. I'm from East St. Louis, Illinois originally, and between where I am here now in Mesa outside of Phoenix and going back home, it's it, it, the it's a 180, night and day. Mm-hmm. I mean, the resources are there here, even in the, I guess, for lack of a better term, worst parts. But going back home, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And it starts with the systems that are, that were done and put in place by design to keep marginalized or Black, African-American people oppressed. And if we dismantle the systems, open up, the, the, get better educational opportunities, better job opportunities, better health care, those crime numbers will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, there, there's data, that's, studies that's been shown how just the smallest increase in you know, just education and having things available resource-wise would drastically drop the crime numbers mm-hmm. in inner cities. And another thing about this black on black crime that we hear so much about, I've seen a lot of it, I've witnessed a lot of it, I lost friends to it mm-hmm. growing up in East St. Louis. However, somebody always went to prison. Mm-hmm. Somebody always was held accountable. Mm-hmm. Now what we're seeing nowadays with officers, they're just walking scot-free. Right. They, they, they kill, they, if they get put on trial, I mean, like you brought up Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did instill Bri- uh, Breonna's law, I believe it's just called, mm-hmm. was just passed the other day in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I believe right. that's where it is. Yeah, so you can't do the no-knock thing anymore. Right. However, the officers that murdered this woman are still free, mm-hmm. haven't even been charged at this point. That's so shameful. So with the black-on-black crime, somebody's always getting caught. I mean, there are, believe me, some criminals do get away, mm-hmm. but 90 plus percent of the time, somebody's going to be apprehended mm-hmm. and on trial, in prison, mm-hmm. whatever else the outcome is. Sure. However, with the police brutality, especially on African-Americans, they walk. Right. And well, there was mm-hmm. another case, actually, where the George Floyd case started in um, Minneapolis, mm-hmm. where a um, Somalian, I guess, officer mm-hmm. shot a white woman, I believe, that called the cops and something was happening and he discharged his weapon and shot her. He's serving time. Mm-hmm. I mean, just boom. Mm-hmm. He got treated like a black on black crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a crime, you know, obviously he did murder the woman. He should be held accountable, but the difference is right there right. in black and white, no pun intended. Right, no, and when you say that sometimes, yes, a criminal can get away with murdering someone. It's usually because we don't know who it was and we don't really have yes. the proof. Whereas when a mm-hmm. police officer kills someone, they have body cameras, they have cameras on their cars, you know? And if that tape of what happened mysteriously disappears, I mean, that's enough information to bring to a jury. I mean, if I were on a jury and a police officer, you know, was involved in a, a killing of someone else and their tape, mysteriously disappeared that would say something to me so i mean the fact that prosecutors don't want to bring the case forward because they know their body cam footage disappeared or something as an attorney i think you know i haven't been a prosecutor but when i think about what i do in bringing evidence in a trial i think well you know that that's that's still 
you know, uh, circumstantial. They should still bring it. And the fact that they're just declining to bring the case, just decline, yeah. just say, oh, no, well, and then, yes, there are laws, you know, that give them immunity from being sued that we definitely need to do away with. Nobody oh, yeah. deserves immunity from being sued. That means you are above the law. No one is supposed to be above the law. So why are mm -hmm. we giving anybody a pass, especially the people who we're handing guns to and saying, here, go into this, you know, situation where people are fighting with each other and keep the peace. And then we're going to say, and if you happen to shoot one of them, don't worry about it. We'll turn the other way. No, that's not going to create somebody who's going to be good at keeping peace. That's going to create a situation of somebody who's going to march in there and think that they can murder people with no recourse. Yeah. And that's what we have. We have a, a yep. really bad situation. Yeah, that's exactly what we have. Actually, um, here in Arizona, there was a, a young man that got shot and killed by the highway patrol out here the same day as George Floyd on Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, nobody's faced trial. They claim their body cameras were turned off. However, it happened and it's interesting because um, allegedly the guy pulled over, you know, in the Gore Point, how to, on this freeway, how it has the white lines. He pulled over in between the light, white lines where it merges and he fell asleep in his car. Maybe he was out drinking, driving. I don't know what the mm -hmm. facts were behind that. But he pulls over in the gore point. So he's in between the white lines and he's sleeping in his car. Uh, two motorcycle officers rode up behind him and somehow the guy winds up dead. There's no body camera evidence. However, because it was on the freeway, ADOT, Arizona Department of Transportation, they have the news channel controls the cameras out there for traffic mm -hmm. daily, how they mm -hmm. update what's happening. So there is some footage and what it shows is the guy handcuffed behind his car on the ground, already shot. They show an ambulance, paramedics about 100 yards back, just sitting there for five minutes while this guy is on the ground and shows one of the officers kicking the guy. Oh, my God. And that While he's already shot, handcuffed, and on the ground. So they don't have the body cam when he actually got shot, but they do have that part from the ADOT camera. So that's going to be interesting as it unfolds. And of course, you probably haven't heard anything about that because the George Floyd case is kind of taking over. But being that I'm local, of course, you know, I've seen what's happening well, with it's that. It's not just because the George Floyd case is taking over. It's because it's so freaking common that we're becoming yeah. desensitized to it. And it's like, oh, yeah. another, another case where somebody was handcuffed and unarmed and was murdered by our people who were supposed to serve and protect us. Oh, well. You know, what are yeah. we doing where we just continue to allow these things to happen? And so, yeah. yes, we're taking to the streets and protesting about it and demanding change. But, the, you know, it it's always feels so unsatisfying when they just say, we're going to reform. And, you know, uh, the, like the recent um, legislation that uh, Governor Cuomo in New York uh, signed into legislation, it sounded as good. Oh, we want sweeping reform and reinvention of the state's police force. And so then they give them a whole bunch of time and they say all these local municipalities, oh, and the police force themselves are going to decide how they're going to remake things. And, and you know, it sounds to me like, okay, we're just going to wait until everybody calms down. We're giving them yeah. this thing to, to make everybody think we're doing something to make them feel better so they'll stop protesting. And then, you know, we have all this time and hopefully people will forget about it while this time is going on and we'll make some little minor reforms here and there. I want to see things like, you know, what's going on in Seattle, what's going on in uh, Minneapolis, where yeah. they're completely disbanding their police department, overhauling the city's handling of public safety and taking it away from people marching around with guns and sticks to for, for public safety. And they're coming up with something else. I want to, I want to see what they're going to come up with. Because there yeah, are some yeah. experiments that are working. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, like you mentioned, I, I believe that's more with, like you mentioned about what's happening in New York. It's like, here, just chew on this or just pacify you, you know, until things kind of blow over. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to say one thing, you know, I've seen plenty of protests. Um, one of the uh, bigger cases was the Mike Brown thing in Ferguson. And, you know, that's right outside of St. Louis. So I know how that directly impacted that area 
this time it feels different. I will say that it feels really, really different. Something is going to happen, and I'm I'm going to remain optimistic on that. But something's going to happen, like you mentioned, how things are changing in Seattle and Minneapolis. Um, I'm 100% behind the defund the police. Mm -hmm. Now I don't read into the words like most people are. Like, well, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. We can't do that. However, taking a they have huge budgets, mm -hmm. and instead of buying military grade weapons. They don't need tanks to patrol anything mm -hmm. uh, in, in a civilian, you know, in cities, inner cities, take away some of that funding and create programs. Like there was even the, I believe the chief police of Dallas, how he was saying they ask officers to do everything there. They have a problem with um, mm -hmm. loose dogs running around, for example. And people are supposed to call the police when they see dogs. They have somebody with a mental health issue they call the police. Um, they call the police, you know, if there's a drug issue. And, and the thing is, especially, you've probably seen some of the mental health patients or people with challenges. Mentally, they end up, sometimes the police roll up so aggressively, they end up getting shot. I've seen several cases of that. Why not put a professional in there without a gun that's educated and has the right tools to de-escalate those situations if there's no weapons involved? Right. I mean, officers do have a role when things get, you know, if that type of protection is needed, but I'd rather see that money go to programs, especially some of the things I mentioned earlier about healthcare right. um, and, and, and education and getting resources to inner cities right. and even everywhere, basically, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, so I'm hundred percent behind the defund the police. Mm -hmm. It needs to be, those funds can be allocated to do a lot more. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is just creating more harm, more distrust from the public because these officers aren't trained to handle half of the situations they roll up on. But however, because they have the funds available, everything is being, everybody's being advised to call 911 and just send officers guns blazing for any little you know situation. Right. Let's get the right programs in place. And I think that will calm down some of it. And also um, some type of sensitivity training and oh, yeah. some serious, serious background checks to uh, see what kind of biases these officers may have just from their everyday lives. How we opened up the dialogue, talking about my experiences and how people perceive me in public mm -hmm. every day. You really need to get inside these people. They're truly going to be public servants to serve and protect you need to see if that's fair across the board or if they have subconscious or conscious biases that are going to lead to their reactions when they show up or get a call. What can we do to, um, I don't know, maybe this is too big of a question for any one person, but what can we do to let people know that black males are not also scary and how do we, you know, overcome this this horrible stereotype that yes, started back in slavery and it was something, it was a tool that was used to keep people in slavery. It's, fear is a tool that is, anytime that anybody comes to you with fear as their motivator for telling you what you need to do, you need to be skeptical because yeah. love does not come from fear. Kindness does not come from fear. You know, so when you, somebody is, is coming from a place of fear, they're trying to warp things around to get you to uh, turn off the part of your brain that actually reasons and go back to the fight or flight part of your brain, that's the reptilian part, where you won't think too much about the cruelty that you're going about to be inflicting. And so, yes, this goes back a long time, but yeah, we see it perpetuated in you know popular music. Of course, everybody talks about gangster rap music, which I love. Um, I love gangster rap music and, you know, be jealous of Chelsea Handler for dating 50 Cent and, and, but it, I don't, I'm not scared of him. I don't think he's going to bust a cap and me, you know, I can sing along with his music and I'm going to read his book and, and you know, be, you know, a little horrified by some of the shit that he did in the past, excuse my French, yeah. but um, I, I, you know, it doesn't scare me personally, but I see how some people um, you know, might be walking down the street. Maybe they haven't, like I grew up in a neighborhood that was all black. And so, you know, if you haven't been around a lot of black people, cause neighborhoods do tend to be somewhat segregated in a lot of places. And mm -hmm. the first time you see, or I don't want to say first time, but you, the, your interactions with black people are all 
in a distant manner where you're not actually getting to know their personalities and seeing that they're nice people just like you. And instead you, ha you think, oh, this person is like this stereotypical caricature that I'm seeing in movies or in rap songs or something like that. And, and they're, you're just reacting again out of fear and not taking the time to use the reasoning part of your brain and get to know people. You know, how do you overcome that? It's so huge. Well, that, that's not for me to answer. I know. It's too big of a question. Let me, let me tell you why. <laughs> um, I'm the one. And, and let me tell you, Brenda, like I said, I got a 50-year resume of being a black man in America. It is fucking exhausting. Every day, I have to put on some type of act to make somebody else feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's not a It's exhausting. Yeah. Day in, day out. When I leave outside my door, it's... Uh, I don't want to appear threatened yeah. instead of just being me. Yeah. And you, you get tired of having to play some type of role. So lately, you know, since all this has been going on, I've been seeing um, some of my white friends. Uh, you may remember she uh, made a post the other day, you know, talking about it and trying to discuss ways with some people. You know, she made a public post and I just read it, you know, because it's truly a conversation white people need to have. Yes. She mentioned, she was very direct and very, you know, honest. And she mentioned when she grew up, you know, she was taught to fear black men mm -hmm. in particular. That's why I say, I can't answer that. I am the one that- You're the victim of it. Right, so why, why do you have to fix what other people's problems are? Yeah. Exactly, and I'm, like I said, I'm damn for sure tired of trying to act a certain way to make somebody else feel comfortable. Right. So I just go out as me, accept me or not, the looks or not, the reactions, clutching your purse, crossing the street, whatever or not, that's their issue. So any, white or other person that feels that fear of me, they need to explore that and just ask, was there a reason why? You know, she said, I believe because her parents or grandparents taught her that. So, and she's overcome it, obviously. So I, will, I, I think she would be a good resource to have a conversation with as to what can be done because she heard it. Maybe she believed it. Maybe she didn't, she didn't go into that. But obviously she overcame it. Well, I so, applaud her courage for admitting that right at this time in history to come forward okay. and say, I was taught this racist way of thinking, and this was what was instilled in me at a young age. Yeah. And, and, you know, shine a light on that. Because I think yeah. there's a lot of people, you know, who are saying, where is this coming from? And it's like, yeah, it's coming from generations passing it down. You know, yes. racism is learned behavior that gets taught by adults, parents from each generation. And what we have to do is just say it stops here. White people, you know, uh, let's educate one another and let's educate our children better. And most importantly, I think we need to, you know, make black friends. And so, you know, we can see uh, the truth about the situation and I know some people have I've had white friends tell me well you know the way that it is in my town we're very segregated and what do I do how do I make friends with black people how do I go and you know, go up to them in the grocery store and say excuse me can I be your friend we have a different skin color and I'd like to get to know you well, how, how well, odd <laughs> we'll see on that it's kind of you know I kind of have a I guess mixed reaction to that as well um mm -hmm. We don't, black people don't need to be an accessory. You know what no. I mean? Hey, I got a black friend. I hate it when I hear somebody uh. say that. You know, it's just like now, you know, you got earrings and a black friend. Right. You know, I got my bag, my black friend, da 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 It's almost like accessorizing black people. No, definitely I mean, don't do that. A, if you live in a segregated area, that's fine, but just don't have, it's just about squashing all this preconceived historical bullshit that you've learned and just say everybody's everybody and if you happen to encounter some black people you just treat them just like if you were encountering a white person you know that's why like i said i mentioned i want to have that conversation with you to say what was it that your grandparents or parents said why were you supposed to fear black people so i think that's what i'm gonna to have to ask her I, i've been saying that since i saw the post but i haven't had a chance to have a conversation with her 
So it, it's just, just let people exist. <laughs> That's all, you know, now, and I'm not saying, hey, I got a black friend now. I mean, but that's great if you work with somebody, you know, yeah, if you have coworkers, hey, you want to go hang out, get lunch after work, have a beer or something and talk, that, that's cool. But don't make it seem like just because the a token thing, right, you know, yeah. if you understand what I'm talking about. No, I do. I understand what yeah, you're talking about. Classify your own I understand what you're talking about, but okay. I also know that people, well, it's hard to, to um, for people to just intellectually break down a stereotype. Most people learn more by doing than they do just by thinking. And so interacting yeah. with other people does help. And so maybe instead of going up to people at the grocery store like I posited, which was ridiculous, <laughs> maybe get involved in some organizations or something like yeah. that where you can help. Mm -hmm. And I think coming out to the protest is, is a great opportunity to meet all kinds of people. But I, yeah, I, I do think that the segregation uh, is a problem and that we all need to, um, you know, have a more diversity in our lives, you know, so mm -hmm. that we, uh, we don't get in these little, you know, and as a woman, you know, and I don't want to, you know, uh, compare apples and oranges, but, you know, I experience uh, gender discrimination all the time. And I often think there's a lot of men who haven't ever been friends with a woman. They always think of women as uh, just a romantic interest and in, uh, or their sister or their mom. And that's it. And they have not they haven't built a level of respect for women that they have for other men because they haven't played on a sports team with women and they haven't played poker with women. They haven't done certain things with women that they've done with other men that they think of as their buddies as they think of people that they can talk to, they can hang out with, they feel more comfortable with being at work with and promoting and that sort of thing. And I think it kind of goes across the board that the more you isolate yourself and you only feel comfortable with certain types of people because that's what you've always known, um, you, you know, that should be a sign to you that something's wrong when you look around and everybody around you looks just like you, you, you must be excluding uh, other people who may have things to offer that you're missing out on because you're only getting one perspective on, on the world when you're surrounding yourself with everybody who's just like you. Yeah, well, I mean... It, but it still starts at home, I think, because um, I grew up in East St. Louis, and it's 97, 99% black. And you got the surrounding areas where, you know, the nicer shopping mall is, and you have to trek out to those areas, which are, were back in those days predominantly white. And you got the looks and everything associated with it, uh, whether it was blatant or subliminal, the, the name calling, all of that I experienced growing up. So... But at the same time, being in my isolated black bubble, if you will, I wasn't taught to hate anybody because of their color of skin. I was taught characteristics. The person next door could be as suspect as the white person when I go into the suburban areas. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't based on skin. That's why I say it still starts at home. Yeah, you though. had good parents. My little black bubble that was 99% black and didn't, there were no white kids at my school. There was one when I got to high school finally. There was one in my graduating class, and it, it it was no hatred. He was just another student. Nobody was tripping off of him. Nobody was isolating, picking on him. You know, nothing. It was just another student. That's nice. It, but even if it, even if you know, whenever I hear people say, you know, people of color saying things like that, you know, that they're very skeptical of white people at first, and the white people have to prove themselves a little bit because they. You know, and you know, they can say things like don't trust whitey and things like that. I get it. Like, I don't take that as any kind of personal slight because I get the way our society is set up is in a way that yes, white people are getting an enormous amount of privilege and yes, people of color are not being treated as well. And it's white people who are in those positions of power who are doing that to the people of color. So of course, if the people of color then look at people who look a certain way and say, oh, I'm going to expect something bad probably coming from you unless you prove different. Right. I get that. That makes total sense. So I don't, that I'm not offended will, by that. That part I will agree on. And that's what I meant. It was more, but it was more based on characteristics because, you know, I was taught like, uh, you know, honestly, every black person ain't going to be your friend. Every white person ain't going to be your enemy. So it was kind of level there. However, I did get the talk before you go out the door, you know, this is the way they're going to perceive you, though. So be careful. Yeah. 
when you go into certain areas, be careful. If the cops roll up on you, you need to act a certain way. So I'm not going to say I didn't hear some of those things, but it was never fear-based. It was factual-based. Like you said, systems are in place to keep black and brown people marginalized and oppressed. But I was taught to fight a fair fight with it more so. Look out for certain characteristics, but always be you. Yeah. Don't go fearful or anything else. Like I said, a lot of people say all kinds of trash about East St. Louis, <laughs> ghetto, yada, yada, yada. But the fearlessness that's instilled in you is irreplaceable. That's why you've accomplished so much. What's that? Maybe that's why you've accomplished so much in your life is that you were instilled with that kind of fearlessness to go out into the world and just do it. Thank you, but I got I feel that I got a long way to go. <laughs> well, I'm still scratching the surface. Well, yeah, I'm sure you're gonna do even more awesome things that you know, you own your own business and you're well known as an amazing trainer and uh, sought out and you know, been a columnist for the fabulous vegan health and fitness magazine. And uh, yeah. so you know, you speak all over the world and I mean you're you're highly respected in your field. Uh, and so um, I think that, that definitely you're known as a success. And uh, so I, I do think that some people can come from a situation where things were tough and turn that into a motivating factor. And then some people come from a, a, a situation where, you know, they, they, they weren't given too many things and let it really get them down. And keep them from even trying anymore because they feel like they've been beat down so much. So mm -hmm. that's another big question that I hate to throw on you, but what do, what do you think is the difference between the people who let it motivate them and the people who let it discourage them? You know, I can't really say if there's a difference because I, I got friends too. I can go home and like I mentioned, I'm 50 years old and I moved away from the area 15 years ago, but I mean, I went off to college prior to that and, you know, haven't, you know, lived as an adult away from the area and may have come back a couple of times. But the saddest thing is when I returned to the area and see guys I grew up with and went to school with and they're still on the corner or, you know, got caught up and strung out on drugs or uh, just not reaching their full potential because I grew up with a lot of these people as kids, so I know they got it in them, but just fell victim to the environment. Um, and it comes down to those factors I spoke about in the beginning. We had a level playing field, we or below level, because we all grew up in the same pretty much financial and in situation, environmental situation, um, played together every day, almost all day, went to school together, everything else. But the difference, I just said, I, I got to go. I got to push forward. I, um, I've, you know, done, sat there drinking beer on the corner, smoking a joint with them, whatever else. But I just had to get more. It was just like, this does not define me. So that's why I, maybe that's the next chapter after training, because I think I'm getting long in the tooth there. I heard you bring up the training thing. Uh, <laughs> Turning 50, and I think um, I may be heading into retirement from training. And that's what I would really like to get involved with is uh, find a way to get the program started and go back into those inner city situations where I grew up and see if I can make a difference there. That's awesome. So that is a that's so similar to what we're doing with the magazine, transitioning from vegan health and fitness, which, yes, I mean, important stuff that we definitely still want to promote. But coming from the heart, maybe a little bit more now with changing the name to Kindness Magazine, wanting to affect things on a broader level. And what you're talking about here, you've come from a place where, yes, you've helped people lose hundreds of pounds of weight. You've helped people get in shape. You've helped people change their diets and turn their health around and get rid of chronic diseases. I mean, you've done so many amazing things in the realm of health and fitness also. And now you're talking about taking it back to where you, you came from and reaching out to people on a different level. And it, I just see like major similarity here. I'm 49 too. Maybe this is like what happens at this time in your life. Maybe it's the, the lockdown that made us, I don't know, but there's something in the air, right? Like the, 
there's a transition happening in the world. There is a shift happening. And um, I really think that's what my calling is. I mean, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. You mentioned helping people lose weight, get fit, transition plant-based diet. And um, ironically enough, from some research I've seen or online articles, Blacks are the fastest growing demographic shifting to veganism. Mm -hmm. So maybe that was me learning my craft, letting my seed get soaked and sprout and grow. And, you know, I'm nearly nine years vegan now, and I was five years vegetarian prior to that. And take that along with the uh, business acumen, plus the fact I had boots on the ground. That's my background. That's my foundation. If I was a computer, I'd be running on East St. Louis platform, you know, like Mac, iOS and all that. That's it. So it's nothing foreign to me. Mm -hmm. I can go back in the worst of the worst situations and hopefully reach people and have an impact like I've done with their health and wellness, but also economically um, somehow get systems set up. And I think where I'm from is the perfect blueprint because um, like, You've probably seen what I'll call them 45 is going to do next week in Tulsa on Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. yes. And there was actually, um, if you go back to 1921 with the Tulsa massacre, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with Black Wall Street, I would like to reinvent that back home. And it, and it, and it would be great. I like it. It would be great because currently the mayor, police chief, assistant chief, several council members are all my peers that I went to high school with. Oh, wow. And I know them personally. Oh, cool. So I think they'd lend me an ear if I have some ideas. And I think it's gonna come down to um, group economics collectively, instead of all the dilapidated buildings and potholes, focus on getting some infrastructure there and give people the opportunity to set up businesses, set up, if you don't wanna to go to college, which is fine, either, some type of entrepreneurship programs or um, good trade schools. You can pick up a trade, but just something to teach people to set up their own, keep it in the community. How I mentioned shooting up to the suburbs and going to the other malls and stuff, keep it back in the community, get the dollar to circulate again, keep building and growing from there. And I think that's the answer to it. And like you mentioned, there's a shift, there's a change in the air. It's just, it's apparent. It's right there. And I believe that's it. And how, uh, before we start recording, I mentioned that, um, you know, my, I recently lost my mom December 2018 and my siblings, they moved up, you know, to those suburban areas, you know, big house now, my sister and my brother, I have one of each, but my mom's house, you know, we went through probate and it's sitting there vacant <laughs> and in it, in, and the area it sits in, you know, it's in East St. Louis, so it's not necessarily nicest. Um, you know, we keep it, alarmed and everything there's already been a couple attempted break-ins on it and some other factors and it's like maybe i'm supposed to go back to my childhood home take what i learned out in the world being away from home bring it back implement it and really really have an impact out here it's great as a trainer i'm impacting people's health and fitness but now really bring a stronger message about everything i know that helped me get away from there and change my mindset as well as has it reached some level of success. Like I said, I don't feel I've begun to scratch the surface yet, but instill that there, get some of those men in the community that are there, because if you're familiar with the prison pipeline system, how a lot of guys are locked up and there's a lot of young men that are fatherless, instead of following those footsteps, get some men there, like myself and some of my peers that are still there, to mentor these young guys and hold them accountable and be there for them and change the whole dynamic. And I think it can be done. And Maybe I'm a fool and a big dreamer, but I feel it happening. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, whatever we can do to support you, please keep in touch and, and let us know if you have any Indiegogos or fundraisers or, you know, anything like that that we can help you publicize. We definitely want to help help you with that. That's amazing. I want. I just wanted to real quickly, in case people didn't know what we were talking about, we kind of went over it real quickly because I nodded, yeah, yeah, about the Black Wall Street. A lot of people might not know that Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, was known as Black Wall Street back in the, uh, I guess, the 19, uh, the teens, 19 teens. And, yeah. and in 1921, white supremacists decided to go and destroy that. 
And this was an area where people who think about this, people who came from slavery, who, uh, or their parents did anyway, had, you know, didn't have the right to vote yet, had no advantages whatsoever, were so smart and so capable in business that they managed to build a black Wall Street in the early 1900s. I mean, think about that, how mind-blowing that is. And that they accomplished that and then just to have it burned to the ground. I mean, yeah, no wonder, like, you know, so many people say, why should I even bother trying when there's always somebody out to, to destroy? So this is such a, a powerful example of what has gone on in our society um, that has kept so many brilliant and, and capable uh, people of color from uh, accomplishing their potential. Think of yeah. the amazing discoveries and inventions and, you know, the, just the way that society might be set up in so much better way if we had allowed power to, to be had by everyone instead of just white men. And we would have so many cool things going on and that you want to recreate that in St. Louis, which I think is an awesome place for it, is this just touches my heart. So yeah, it's, a, it, it's a shame the way that happened. And uh, it was based on jealousy and, you know, skin color, as we talked about. And I mean, that's not the only place in America that was like that. There was also Rosewood, Florida, even East St. Louis, where I'm from. They had a race riot back in the early 1900s. Um, it was predominantly white people there and a lot of blacks were migrating from the south and they felt like they were taking their jobs. And there was a massacre in um, over, I believe, Six, seven hundred black people were killed by some rioting white supremacists. So, I mean, it's happened all over. It's woven in the fabric of America. That's the thing people fail to realize. So when, they, when I see, um, you know, and it's mellowed out some, but saw the looting and riots in the street, I'm not going to say I agree with it, but I do understand. I do, too. I, t I do, too. And I just don't understand this fear when you see those videos of these white supremacist men marching around in Charlottesville, North Carolina, not too long ago saying, you will not replace us. And I'm thinking, okay, so what if, uh, say for instance, um, the music industry or our sports industry or Hollywood, um, all these different places where we have so many amazing uh, black talented people and people of all races doing amazing things. What if we had kept those things all white? How freaking boring and awful and, you know, less wonderful would music be when that, if we wouldn't have let black people in? If we, if we didn't let black people play sports, would anybody even want to watch them? <laughs> it's like, what? why, if you keep black people out of your business, do you understand that you are hurting your business? You are keeping your business from having people who have a different perspective, who have, you know, brilliant minds, uh, bringing in ideas that would actually make things better. Like, how is that benefiting, you know, it's not even benefiting you, you know? It's so silly. It, yeah, and it's interesting, even, um, you know, a lot of times here in 2020, we're still hearing, you know, when somebody reaches a certain level or gets elected to a certain position, oh, they're the first black person to be it. And we're all, all the way, you know, from that violent history that we talked about a couple of seconds ago, all the way here in 2020. And we're still just now reaching some heights that are considered the first of, you know, one thing about that, there was a guy that posted something. He talked about black universities and that's a double standard or is it racist? And I had to educate the young man. I'm like, well, you know, those came about the historically black college and university HBCUs as they're called because we weren't allowed admission to white universities. Right. So we had to create our own. So even in the vegan movement, I'm realizing there are some downright inbred racists, mm -hmm. which, you know, we talked about how Tess and others maybe have heard certain messages pumped mm -hmm. in their heads since they were infants. And I've disassociated myself with a lot of people over the last few weeks. And it's great because, you know, and it's literally coming down to pick a side. You want to be on the right side of history. You want to keep perpetuating that same 
oppressive mentality and systematic racism that has ruined the country in a sense. I mean, I never benefited from it anyway, so it's a ruin to me. But getting back to what I was saying a second ago, in the vegan community, even when, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Black Veg Fest, mm-hmm. it takes place in Brooklyn, up in New York. I think it was Brooklyn one year, Bronx one year. I went to the first one in Brooklyn. And when uh, the guy started promoting it, I saw all kinds of white vegans say, well, what if we said there was a white veg fest? That's not fair. That's not mm-hmm. fair. And the thing is, a lot of white people fail to realize how I mentioned earlier, how exhausting it is. Either you got to put on some kind of act to make somebody else feel comfortable or being viewed in a certain way, getting looks by people. You have no damn idea how exhausting that is day in and day out. So to be in a safe space, he's not saying anti anybody. There was people from all demographics there, LGBTQ, um, Hispanic, white, predominantly black. It was just a safe space where I didn't have to put on a damn act to make other people feel comfortable. It it was a beautiful thing. Mm And all the people that are so short-sighted and see it as they see black. And I think that's the trigger word. And like your t-shirt says, black lives matter. And people come back, all lives matter. I don't know why black is a trigger word for so many people. When we live in this white world, whether they're taking advantage of it or not, that's their bad. But the, the, <laughs> the privilege is there. Don't blame me. Don't get mad at me because I uh, choose to go to a black veg fest or somebody create something. It's just to have a safe space because he understands what it's like to be black in America. It's not anti-anybody. It's me hatred towards anybody. It's just come over here, breathe, and you don't have to act. You can just relax and be you. Right. Well, I'm sure it is get exhausting having to educate people over and over again. And there are, you know, so many white people myself included who have been in in you know privileged situation where we haven't experienced what people of color have experienced and we we walk around and it's all people we all walk around completely thinking that everybody is just like us everybody experiences just what I experienced and everybody, you know, and we forget, oh no, your experience is so different from mine. And it can be for the smallest thing. Like I know when I change my hair color, you know, I've been blonde for a long time. And then, you know, doing the darker hair color when I had red hair color, people treated me completely differently. Can you imagine if I had changed my skin color? Yeah. And there's no people with blonde hair or dark hair or whatever that were slaves just because of their hair color. So the the minute differences that I noticed in people treating me like maybe I was a little bit more friendly, but maybe a little bit not as smart when I had the blonde hair. But when I have the darker hair, people think that I'm more serious and maybe a little smarter. It's so strange. Like my intelligence has nothing to do with my hair color. (laughs) So, you know, your, you know, scariness or, you know, ability to do whatever has nothing to do with skin color either. And I know for you, you're like, well, duh, just treat me like a person. Yeah. I don't know why people always have to have stereotypes. The thing is, you know, for a long time, and sometimes I still do think, I'm like, okay, is it the white people are delusional, the ones that say that the privilege doesn't exist? or Because, you know, they don't experience what I experience every day. So I'm like, okay, they just truly don't understand. And then some say, well, I have no privilege. And they always try to equate it to financial gain or something like that. Like I mentioned earlier, if you're not using that privilege to your benefit, that's your bad. And it does exist. I'm not saying you haven't had challenges. I'm not saying you haven't faced hard times. I'm saying you never experienced those because of the color of your skin, mm-hmm. just showing up. Right. The, Cause it's the white world. It's designed for you. The forefathers who did it, they have no problem with it. They made it that way. I mean, the Constitution doesn't include people that look like me. I'm in America, but I wasn't included in that. It says, even you talked about gender a little bit, it says all men created equal, et cetera, et cetera. They definitely weren't talking about me because I, my ancestors, my lineage weren't considered people. We're considered property. Right. So 
And women were too. I mean, not, yeah. we weren't slaves. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, if you want to equate it, I think about a lot of the situations with women over the years where we've basically been sex slaves because we've been property of our father until we're married to a man who, you know, the, the, the parents approve of. And then he, you know, is he owns you and your body. You know, that's the way that it has been. Um, it wasn't even right to, uh, uh, if you forced uh, sex on your wife until just a few years ago. So, but no, we, we have not experienced it to the extent, you know, it's, it's all different. And I think that whenever we start saying, oh, my pain is worse than your pain and what I've been through is worse than yours or, or what, I mean, we, we've, you know, and I don't want to say, oh, we've all been through bad things either, but it's like, yeah, there are some people, yeah, who have had it worse. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I definitely admit that. And I just, you know whatever privilege I have, you know, even though grown up poor and that sort of thing, whatever, I, I do know that I have had the opportunity to speak up and have people listen to me in situations maybe where they wouldn't have listened to a person of color because maybe the people I'm talking to are racist. So I get a chance to maybe educate them and share information with them and uh, try to open their minds a little bit where a person of color wouldn't, wouldn't be heard. And that's what we should be using this privilege for, is trying to create more equality and not, I think hoarding is a, a very dangerous thing that goes on. And, you know, people trying to hoard wealth, people trying to mm -hmm. hoard yeah. tension, power, whatever it is, whatever it is that you've been given in life, be grateful for it and then share it. Yeah. And if what you've been given is an opportunity to speak out somewhere where someone else will hear you use it to help others not just yourself don't be so selfish don't go around just wanting like i've, I've said many times justice is not just us yeah if you if your idea of justice is focusing on just us that ain't justice Absolutely. you need to be reaching out to help others who are not in your group and so yeah while well, i do the women's rights marches i also do the black lives matter marches and if you care about discrimination it's like has been said many times if if anybody is um, experiencing injustice then we should all realize that it's affecting all of us and we all need to get involved and we all need to do whatever we can and as a business owner i know the one thing i try to do is i try to hire people of color i try to, you know, I, I run a magazine so i try to feature people of color inside it and promote their businesses and that sort of thing and so every everybody has their own little sphere of influence where they have yeah. something that they could do that would help. And so just keep in mind, you might have to, as a business owner, have to go out of your way to reach out to people of color more because maybe they're, you know, outside of your, your normal circle of interaction, do it. You know, it's worth it because it's going to benefit all of society and it's going to benefit your business because you're going to have diversity and you're going to have people who you wouldn't have had, giving you ideas that you wouldn't have had that are going to make things more appealing to a broader range of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to commend you guys for doing that because um, I remember with Vegan Health and Fitness, you did have a Vegans of Color issue a while ago, which uh, featured myself and uh, quite a few other people that I know and some I didn't know and got introduced to that are vegans of color. Quick side note, just wanted to let everybody know that we did have people of color on over one fourth of the covers of Vegan Health and Fitness magazine and many inside of every issue. And that's another um, kind of uh, sticky point in the vegan world right now, how um, people are saying, how can you not have compassion for your fellow human the way you show it for animals and a lot of People are just like, vegan means animal only, forget everything else. Right. And uh, I think it should be all encompassing because it's based mm -hmm. on compassion. I can have as much compassion for a pig as well as a person. And that's my take on it. I yeah. see it as all encompassing. And a lot of people are drawing this hard line in the sand, which is fine because I would rather for them to be straightforward as to who they are then, you know, put on this act. That's the most disappointing thing when, you know, and I've experienced it before when there's a white person or something that smiling on your face and calling you names on your back. Mm -hmm. Not so nice names too. And I've experienced right. that many times before. So it's nothing new. That's why nothing shocks me, especially anything that um, 
the guy at 1600 Black Lives Matter Parkway does. That's the name of the street now. I know, I love it. <laughs> so when I see stuff, nothing surprises me about him and his tactics and how he fires up a certain base, that little niche. I mean, they do support him. That shows that anybody can have an audience. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I do feel that this is a shift and it's going to be real this time something's gonna come out of it because my generation and you know, my lineage, my ancestors, you know, Dr. King and the like, they wanted change, they wanted peace, but it was very slow. And you know, we were used to life at a different pace at that point. These Generation Z millennials, they want stuff now. They're used to prime Amazon, you order something that's at your door in two hours. That's why I think that's gonna make the difference because they're out there in the streets, they're active and they want stuff when they want it. You know, it's we're not benefiting like, from their attention deficit disorder. Right. Exactly. That's wonderful. Oh my exactly. god, that's the that's, first time I've thought about that in a good way. That, that's my philosophy because when they want something, they want it now. You know, um, I have a you know 12-year-old stepdaughter, so I understand. Mm -hmm. I they know love. when they want it, they want it right this second. It's not, oh, we'll do it tomorrow or next week. No. It's now. And I think, that, and there are a lot of the ones that's out there in the streets, you know, um, marching, protesting the way this is. And that's why I think change is really going to happen. It's the young folks. Awesome. I love it. That's their answer to Martin Luther King's uh, talking about how they keep telling us to wait. Yeah. We've been waiting too long. And this generation is like, no, we don't wait. <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Will, and for discussing this very important topic that I know can can be painful to talk about because you know, it, it hits close to home and you know, you've experienced it. So thank you for being open about that and sharing mm -hmm. your experiences. And I hope that by us talking about it more that um, we can come up with new ways of, of behaving in society that will help bring I don't want to say an end to it but again like hey I need to be like these millennials and be like we want to end it now you know don't be yeah. like my slow generation but yeah we need to bring an end to this we need to, to we need to be a little bit impatient about it it's, it's enough is enough right absolutely yeah thank you for having me on and uh closing I just want to say you know um it, it does start with white people you know one thing that I really really it really touched my heart during all this because the George Floyd thing felt different because I I messed up. I watched the entire video uh -huh. and it really uh, affected me. One thing that I will say, and you know these folks that I'm about to mention because they're good friends of both of ours, I believe, <laughs> but uh, Robert and Karen reached out to me about a week after that and just to check on me. And we had about an hour long conversation similar to like we had. And the one thing they did, they just listened. And then the question that they had after they listened to me, what can we do to help? And it comes, it's gonna have to be white people to dismantle this thing, whether it's that instant Generation Z millennial change or whatever, or you know, if it takes a little bit of time, but it comes from white men especially because they have a seat at that table of privilege. What are you gonna do to change and level the playing field. And Robert's been a lot more outspoken about things. Um, and after this is Robert Cheek. Karen, yeah, Robert Cheek. I just want to say it's Robert Karen Cheek Tom. and his girlfriend or wife, Karen Osley. Wife, yes, they're married now. <laughs> yeah, but you know, after I got off the phone with them, I felt a lot lighter. Yeah. Because it, it was genuine and they wanted to know what they can, what they can do. And, um, Karen mentioned, you know, they moved to Colorado. All you guys keep getting out of Arizona for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the heat. She mentioned uh, some books she was reading with some other friends of hers, kind of like a book club and having discussions. It starts with the discussions, like you said to me, you know, thank you for talking about it. We have to be open. It's there. Let's talk about it. Let's not avoid it. Let's find a solution. I'm, if lack of a better term on the outside, if you had to see the table, level the playing field. And Robert asked me again, like I said, he said, what can I do? And I told him one thing at the end of that conversation. I said, check on your black friends just to see how they're doing. If you have, you know, more than just me, hopefully I'm not the accessory. <laughs> <laughs> check on them and see how they're doing. And he reached out to quite a few um, 
black guys in the vegan movement that he's comfortable talking with. And um, it seems to really impacted him. And he's been a lot more outspoken using this platform to, you know, promote Black Lives Matter and a lot of injustice. And, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge that because him calling me made me feel better. And there have been, you know, other white allies of mine that have reached out to me, yourself included. And I want to say, I do thank you guys. And I appreciate it for recognizing it. And together we can fight this virus, as you called it in the beginning, that's been around for 40 years and there's no vaccine for it, but we can use the millennial power, the Generation Z power, the ones out there, and we can do this and just make it so everybody can just exist. I mean, that would be the best thing ever is just be able to exist. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. I love that your solution is so simple. Just reach out to your black friends and show them that you care, you yeah. know, and listen. Listen to them yeah. and ask them, what can I do? I think that is such a beautiful solution. And, you know, like I said, if you're a business owner, hire more black people. Yeah. <laughs> Reach out and, you know, help, you know, wherever you can. If, you know, whatever your sphere of influence is, um, donate money to organizations, get out and march with other people who are, you know, anybody who's, who is being oppressed. If you are a caring person, get involved and help. So yes. again, thank you so much for your time, Will, and um, we'll keep in touch. All right, thank you. Always much love. To talk to you. Always a pleasure. You can see our podcast episodes as videos on our YouTube channel or at kindnessmag.com, where you'll also find great articles and recipes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at kindnessmag.